A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. It was a who's who all-star game. I mean, you talk about Dr. J's last all-star game. They wanted him to be the MVP. Cream was there. Larry obviously was in it. Kevin, I mean, a great, great group. Isaiah, I was able to be on the floor with those guys. Certainly a dream of mine. It's got to be at the pinnacle of my career just because of the fact that who the guys were on the floor, and I was the best player that day. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off, and there's number 23, and of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you make the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned, and all the muscles fired at the right time, and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 135. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to welcome the legendary Tom Chambers to the show. A massive thanks to our mutual friend, Jeff Wells. Jeff was my guest on episode 128. We detailed his campaign for Tom to enter the Basketball Hall of Fame. We also spoke at length about Jeff's awesome YouTube channel, TC24, devoted to the life of Tommy C. Without Jeff, today's episode simply would not be possible. I strongly encourage you to subscribe to TC24, a wealth of excellent clips and features on Mr. Chambers. This episode is sprinkled with audio snippets that add more context to my conversation with Tom. In some instances, the audio is edited for brevity. Where applicable, most clips are available to watch or listen to in full on TC24 on YouTube. Please note that our conversation was recorded on January 21, 2024. As of that date, the stats I discussed with Tom about the number of 60-plus point scorers are correct. In recent weeks, remarkably, an additional five such games have been added to that list. TC discusses a wealth of topics in this episode. From a personal point of view, it may be the most enjoyable conversation in the history of my podcast. Show notes for this episode and access to a huge archive of past episodes are available at inallairness.com. Now, onto the show. My guest today is a four-time NBA All-Star and 16-year veteran. He was the first unrestricted free agent signing in league history and, including the playoffs, has scored a total of 21,711 points in his storied career. In 2022, he was selected as a first-time nominee for entry to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Tom Chambers, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally got together. It's been a while trying to figure out how to communicate with you down under. It has, but I'm glad it's happened, and I want to thank a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Wells, who we'll get to a bit later on in this conversation, the curator of 
a great YouTube channel devoted to yourself, TC24. It's exciting to be able to talk about your life in basketball. Per basketball reference, you were born in Ogden, Utah, and grew up in nearby Pleasant View and attended Weber High School. And courtesy of the Ogden Standard Examiner, I uncovered a photo of you from 1974. It was the ninth grade president, Tom Chambers. <laughs> and then also, less than two months later, another photo of you, this time on a baseball diamond, you were helping prepare for like a little league tournament that was coming up. So. You've got a good background in student council and also you were playing some sports. I also read you're a sprinter as well. Before we talk hoops, how do you reflect on that time in your life and what comes to mind there, Tom? I can't believe you find this stuff. Makes me smell. Yes, I was the ninth grade president. Yes, I lived on a baseball field. I coached my little sister's team when I was in the sixth grade. She was the third. And then for three years after that, we were champions. And I was the coach sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And North Ogden Junior High. I played football. I played basketball. The only track I really ran was when we had like the the field day and I had to show guys how fast I actually was. <laughs> I like the sound of that. At what stage of your high school years did you really sprout up? Well, I was always tall, but not extremely. There were always guys my size. I think my ninth grade year, I was 5'11", something like that. And then my sophomore year, I was 6'2". So I was a late bloomer. I grew late, but it was good because I was a normal sizer, tall, but not not extreme. I was able to play a lot of positions and play football and then baseball. I was a really good baseball player. And then also I loved basketball the most, but I enjoyed the other sports as well. Not long after that photo of you on the baseball diamond took place, I read that you hit a grand slam for a team that won 23 runs to one in a little league tournament. Do you have any recollection at all of hitting a grand slam? I was a good hitter. So I was that guy that they tried to walk and I'd step across the plate and, and hit it out of the park. But I used to play a lot of baseball and I was really good at that. Uh, my arm wasn't as strong. I had a brother who pitched. I played first base and pretty much batted cleanup. But I don't remember that grand slam, but I hit the ball well. I was a D1 recruit actually in high school, all the way up to high school. Wow. Did not know that. You attended Weber High. It was the first of three schools in as many years, primarily due to the nature of your father's job, I believe, at American Motors. Uh, I read that you averaged an incredible 35 points per game, mostly in junior varsity competition. When did basketball first appear on your radar? Oh, I always played in the driveway when I was a kid, shot against my dad. I had a brother who was two years older, so we were always shooting around. But the first time we ever played in a league was in the fifth grade. It was fun. I loved playing in the winter. I was like one of the kids back then that played every sport during that season. But basketball, I first started playing in a gym competitively in the fifth grade. Your high school hoops performances certainly weren't affected by the move from Utah to Colorado. Uh, I read that as a junior at Aurora Central, you scored 22 points and 10 rebounds per game. And then as a senior at Fairview High School in Boulder, you led the state with almost 28 points per game and had over 17 rebounds per game. One particular article said that in the state tournament, you scored 122 points across four games, so obviously 30 points per game or better, and then you had a 50-point effort as well. Quite remarkable. Do you recall the 50-piece that you dropped or what springs to mind just in general from those three different years at three different schools? I played a little bit of JV. I never played any varsity. I was a 6'2 sophomore, but then I started to grow. Our family moved to Colorado. I was a 6'6 junior. 
I remember there was a Denver Mile High Basketball one-on-one tournament, and I entered, and, and I actually won it. And going from Ogden, Utah, where competition wasn't great, to Denver, where the whole metropolitan area was there, and I was able to win it, my skills really developed in my junior year. I grew a bunch. There was some Delmar courts, they called them right there by my house in Aurora when I was there my junior year. And so I was on the asphalt playing basketball every single night with grown people. It really helped me improve my game, get stronger, get more physical and learn to play. So yeah, my junior year, I, I really came into my own. We were good and scouts were coming actually to see a teammate of mine named Mike Dow, who was a center at the time. And then they saw me and I hit everybody's radar my junior year. Moved up there my senior year, and I played with a guy named Jim Feeney, and we were one of the better teams in the entire country. I think we scored almost 100 points a game in high school. I scored, I don't know what he said, 27 or something like that. We went to the state tournament. We were favored. We were up 20 points or something in the game to go to the championship game. We ended up losing on a just a weird stretch of things. And, and so in that final game for third and fourth place, we were really upset, and we played against a Wheat Ridge High School, and they had some Division One players, a guy named uh, Craig Austin and, and another guy, I forget his name, and I scored 50 on him. My point guard, Jim Feeney, who went to Colorado University and then to the University of Utah, blew out his knees. I think he had a career day in assist, 20 or something like that. So, yeah, we held the Denver High School records for a long time with that game, and it was just because we were pretty upset that we weren't playing in the championship game. Tom McCracken, your coach at Fairview, and this is based on notes from Jeff. He claimed that you played with Magic Johnson during your senior year in a game or maybe at a camp of high school stars, and he said that you were extremely impressed by Magic's abilities. Now, we'll obviously talk about the Magic Man and the 1987 All-Star Game in which you were the MVP, but is that true that you first met up and played either with or against Magic back in your high school senior year? I was invited to go down there and play in a tournament in Southern California. And Magic, he was there, got to play against him. But, you know, it was really kind of a coming out party for me to get out and get exposed and see how the rest of the world played. It wasn't like we could follow anybody. There wasn't the social media or you weren't reading anything about anybody other than if you picked up a sporting news or something like that, you might get an article about somebody. So back then I was able to play against those guys. And it seems like every time I got to play against better competition, I rose to that level and kept competing with that level of players. And even in Colorado, I started going down and, and hanging out down with the Nuggets down there a little bit and playing against some maybe a guys back then too. Larry Brown was the coach of the Nuggets back then, so I got to play with some really good competition. And my game went crazy. I went from 6'2 to 6'9 in three years and went from a guard to a power forward center type guy. So there was a lot of stuff happening. I love that you were mixing it up with some of the ABA guys as well back at that stage. I've read that in mid-April of 1977, you signed a letter of intent with the Utah Utes. You were born in Utah. Returning back to Utah, was that always a plan in terms of college or were there other colleges that were trying to lure you away? I was recruited pretty heavily. I liked the Western Athletic Conference at the time. It was a higher scoring conference. The running youths, they were a team that, that played the way I like to play, get it out, run, score a bunch of points. I was obviously in Boulder. Colorado wanted me to go there bad, but every time I went to a Big 8 game, they scored 60 points. It was just boring basketball for me and what I wanted to do and the skill set I had, which was to run and score. Utah made a lot of sense to me to go back there. 
I was looking at BYU, and that's where Danny Ainge went, and they were really good. And then I went to uh, Utah with Danny Brains, who was in the NBA. And so we had some really competitive games in that conference back then. Back then, ASU was in the conference. U of A was in the conference. I actually took a recruiting trip to U of A. I took a recruiting trip to uh, Purdue, where another Colorado guy went to school the year before, Joe Barry Carroll, with Fred Schaus back there in Purdue. So I took some trips, but I really liked Utah. It came down to BYU or University of Utah, and Utah won out. I just really liked the the style of play they had going there. That's a fascinating wrinkle that uh, you could have possibly been teammates in college with Danny Ainge, who obviously you become a teammate with in the NBA when you joined the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, except I didn't like him at all when he was against me. You know, <laughs> Danny was always one of those guys you just... I got to play against Fred Roberts, who was on their team, and he was in the NBA, and they had Durant, and he became an NBA player, and Greg Kite, who was a Boston Celtic first-round player. So they had a really good team. We had a really good team as well. As competitive as I was and as competitive as Danny Ainge was, yeah, we didn't see eye-to-eye all the time, that's for sure. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> I like hearing that. Obviously, competitive nature, so it's to be expected, I suppose. I read that in May of 1977, you played for Team USA, comprised of some American high school all-stars, and you took on the Soviet Junior Nationals. Now, the game was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You led Team USA with 21 points and grabbed five rebounds in a tough loss. It was 84 to 80. How did it feel to represent the USA at such a young age and the impression it would make on you going forwards? Well, it was fun. It was the southwestern region, if you will had an opportunity to play against other countries and obviously Russia, they were known as the world's best. I got another chance to play against someone. I went to the University of Utah. We played the Russian national team and I had a great game. My first, as a freshman at the University of Utah and I had like 19 points or something against those guys when they were the best team in the world. The Albuquerque thing, yeah, just fun to get an opportunity to play against people around and just see how different games were and different players were and grow as a player myself to see what can happen and what I can do. And and I was blessed. I got to play in these games where I wasn't that guy that had to go post up. I was a face the basket guy, liked to get the ball at 15 feet and go by people and dunk, ran the baseline, ran the floor. So I wasn't your normal 6'9", six, 6'10", six, guy who just had to go inside and post up. I was able to take big people out a little bit and take advantage of them with my quickness. I do plan to ask you about that game against the Russians. When you joined the roster of the Utes, it featured four future NBA players. It was yourself, obviously. There was Jeff Judkins, Danny Vrains, who you've mentioned already, a guy named Greg Dean, who I wasn't familiar with, but the other two definitely I was, Jeff and Danny, who I've actually recently learned were cousins. So there you go. How was that transition from high school to college? It was awesome. It really was. Danny started right away. He was that All-American guy that came in, and they had a really good team with Jeff Judkins. Buster Matheny was the starting center. Greg Dean was a small forward, and Jeff Jonas, he was a heck of a point guard, too. That group was graduating, and then my sophomore year, I was able to slide in and become one of the better players for that team at the university. But we had a really nice group, competed. We beat some really good teams. We were good, and Coach Pim actually said one of the worst things he ever let me do was score 19 points against the Russians in my first game my freshman year because he thought that would make me so I didn't work hard and didn't compete as hard as I could have because the star mentality would have settled in, but it didn't. It just made me even more hungry to experience that, to get better and to try and continue to win. I've got a couple of tidbits that I read in one of the articles about Coach Jerry Pym, which I will look forward to hearing your thoughts on shortly. 
you did mention briefly the game against the Russians. It was your first game in the preseason, and you took on the Russian national team. It featured a twenty-year-old, seven foot two. I've read reports of anywhere up to about seven foot five. Uh, Vladimir Kachenka, I think is how you pronounce his surname. You were only eighteen at the time. It's your first game as a freshman. The Daily Utah Chronicle included this quote of yours following the game. I was really scared, so scared that I didn't know what to do at first when I went in. That guy was really big, (laughs) end quote. The Soviets held on for an 83-75 to win, and you were pretty much spot on. You scored 17 points, all of which were in the second half, and also had nine rebounds, so more than held your own in your very first college appearance. What springs to mind when you talk about that particular game going up against the size of that Russian front line? Well, he was huge. I, I, he, he could have been seven, three, four, five, I don't know, but well over 300 pounds and skilled like Sabonis was when he came uh, back over here and played with the Trailblazers. But they were the best team in the world at the time. That's when the USA just had amateurs going to the Olympic Games and those guys were professionals and that was their Olympic team. And they had won the Olympic gold. So it was a challenge. It was like, oh my gosh, these are guys I've seen on TV in the Olympic Games. It was nerve-wracking to start, but once I got out there and started playing and started running, it was just basketball, and the guy was a monster, literally, but using what I had at the time, I was probably just 220, 6'9", 6'10", and I was just flying up and down the court and having a blast. Sounds like a fantastic time for a young Tom Chambers, for sure. Now, I read a great article that was in the Salt Lake Tribune that detailed Coach Pim's motivation tactics and he recalled your burning desire to improve every year, and he had the following quote, I helped Tom by not starting him as a freshman, because that really set him on fire, end quote. As a freshman, you averaged 6.4 points and almost four rebounds in just under 13 minutes a game. Do you think that's where your competitive nature comes from, or does it date back to even earlier than that, Tom? I was always competitive with everything that I did. Coach Pim used to look the other way, and the coaches had run me on defense the entire time against the whole team, and and they tried to really get after me. I don't know if it's because I looked like I did things easier or didn't look like I was working hard enough or what, but yeah, he definitely did that. Even one time, my, I think it was my sophomore year, he sat me out of one of the games we lost that year, but he was trying to motivate me and make me play hard. I got better. I don't know if it was needed because I just liked to win. I did. I was always that competitive guy at every level, at every game I played. Even, you know, you look back at that Russian game, I competed then. That was before I really got going. But, yeah, he didn't start me. There were a lot of times where I thought I I could have been that guy. I came in and and played well, but he wanted to keep me in where I was at to make me work harder, in his opinion. But it worked out really well. I had a great career there. Danny was always that guy. He was that guy on the Olympic team. He was that guy that was an All-American, and I was that guy that came out of nowhere that nobody recognized. But then when they watched us play, we go to – Tennessee and playing the Volunteer Classic, and I'm the MVP, and we go wherever, and I'm the MVP. So I had some great games with that group and really blossomed because of it. You played all four seasons at Utah alongside Danny. You were both drafted into the NBA in 1981, and then also you would be teammates in Seattle. Were you aware of Danny prior to joining the Utes? I knew of him. Even when I was at Weber High School, Danny was winning the state championship at Skyline High School. He was a six seven stud. And I was just a scrawny little sophomore, and and I grew and ended up being probably better than Danny later on. But at that point, he was, yeah, he was really, really good. And he was one of the reasons I wanted to go to Utah, because I knew the team would be good. I knew we could compete. I knew we could play together and play together well. 
very, very skilled player Danny was. Really good player, defensive player, offensive player, real complete game. I need to brush up on my knowledge of him. He certainly seems like he was a big problem in college and also obviously got into the NBA as well. As a freshman, your Utes went 23-6 and six and you made the Sweet 16 before losing out to a absolutely loaded Notre Dame team that featured eight future NBA players. What was that first taste of the NCAA tournament like for you? It was great. It really was. I think that was Lambeer and those guys. It was. Obviously, that was the team back then. Notre Dame was one of those who's who's a basketball team. And it was a great experience. I thought we could have and should have won it. And maybe that stage was a little large for our Utah team at the time. Some of the guys didn't perform as well as they probably could have. But everything was a learning experience, and we continued to get better every year. That team had all kinds of future talent in the NBA. There was Kelly Chapuka, Orlando Woolridge, Bill Hanslick, Bill Lambeer, names everywhere that would become staples in the NBA. Now, as a sophomore, the Utes went 20-10. and 10. You were named a second-team All-WAC Western Athletic Conference and then led the team in blocks. And you made the first round of the NCAA tournament but lost out to Pepperdine in overtime. Despite your best efforts, you had 26 points on 13 of 18 from the field and 12 rebounds in just 31 minutes, and you actually fouled out in overtime. What springs to mind from that second season at Utah, stepping up your game considerably and then getting into the NCAA tourney? Well, getting more time. I started that season for the most part. was able to get out there and showcase my skills. And the team, we had a really good group. We ran, we passed. Danny and I both. Even though we were really, really good players, we were still playing 25, 26 minutes a game because Coach Pim was running people in and out all of the time. But uh, our numbers were good. That Pepperdine game was weird when it's one we certainly should have won. I remember, for the most part, when we had big games, I usually played well. I was not one of those guys that was ever scared of the moment and usually went out and performed well. It's just the way I was with my competitive nature. But yeah, certainly disappointed to lose then because I thought we had a chance to, to, to be really good. Before your junior season, it was in April of 79, you were one of 70 players who were selected for the Pan American Games tryouts that were held at Indiana University. And from what I've read, it was five days of trials to make the 12-man team that was heading to San Juan in Puerto Rico in July. From one of the articles that I read, it says, quote, despite some phenomenal basketball, there were many differences from a regular game. There was no scoreboards, no clocks, and no fans. Players hustled until they heard a horn, and very few of them probably even knew what the score was, end quote. Players included your Utes teammate, Danny Vrains, uh, future NBAers like Mike Jaminski, Kelly Chapuka, Bill Hanslick, Darnell Valentine, and Kyle Macy. On top of that, Hoosier recruit Isaiah Thomas and another high schooler, Ralph Sampson, were also invited. So Bobby Knight was the head coach. All that said, how tough were those tryouts, Tom? Well, it was tough. I performed well, and it was actually the U.S. Olympic tryouts. That year, they boycotted the Olympic Games, and so they picked a second unit, and the second unit was the group that went to the Pan American Games. The tryouts for the Olympic team, I played tremendous. I really did. I felt as though I had a chance to make the team. Danny made the team, the original team, but that team did not go because of the boycott that year, from what I remember. How was the experience later that same year? You did fly over to Argentina, and just being a part of that Team USA, was that the first time you traveled overseas? Well, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
I think my first flight was when I went to Purdue for a recruiting trip. So in college, but yeah, that was, I'm sure the first time I'd gone over there, great group of guys with a Buck Williams and I think Roosevelt Bowie and I think Panslick and Darnell Valentine. And it was a really fun group. We trained and worked out, I think at Holy Cross University. Who was the coach there? George Blaney, I think was the, one of the coaches. Great memory. We went down there and had fun. I think I led the team in rebounds, which doesn't sound like me. It's normally a scoring thing, but I think I led the team in rebounds and we just had a really, really talented group. I'm impressed with your recall. Obviously, I've been researching madly ahead of time to get all this put together in chronological order, but you're spot on. It's George Blaney. Holy Cross was the head coach. And you mentioned, I think, Dino Valentine. You also had Jay Vincent and Mark Aguirre were a couple of other guys that were also part of that team. In the 1980 season, as a junior, your Utes went 18 and 10. You were again named second team all-whack and led Utah in rebounding and free throw percentage. And I read another great tidbit that Coach Pim talked about in that motivation article. He said that when you would go deer hunting, he'd remind you what you could have been doing instead. Does that ring any bells with you? I think Danny and I came to practice late one day because we got stuck on the mountain deer hunting or something in the snow. But I'd love to get out in the hills. I love to hunt. I love to do other stuff too. And I don't know, maybe he thought I was supposed to be a practice a couple hours early. but. <laughs> Coach Pim and I had a love-hate relationship. He always thought he had to keep his thumb on me to, to make me better, and I don't know if that's true or not, but it turned out well. I just kept getting better every single year. One of your nicknames, Tommy Gun, does that refer to your hunting prowess or is completely unrelated? I don't think that had anything to do with the hunting. I just think because I was a machine gun kind of a fire, you know, I wasn't afraid to shoot my basketball, so I, I don't think it came from the hunting thing, but... Uh, well, it's funny because my ranch, there's Shooting Star Ranch, and, and I always loved the, you know an actual shooting star, but also shoot a basketball like a star and shoot a gun like a star. So Shooting Star was my ranch name still is. I certainly did love to get up in the hills and hunt. But yeah, I remember coming to practice one time a little bit late. Danny and I had uh, <laughs> got stuck up on the hill with some bad weather and, and some hunting. It was fun, but he wasn't real happy. You might have paid the price at that particular training session. <laughs> I paid the price, but Danny never had to. He was the chosen one with Coach Pim. So it was kind of interesting. Like, I got punished. I guess I was driving. I don't know. Maybe that was why. <laughs> Danny avoided the wrath, but you you copped it. Oh, yeah. He started from day one. He deserved it. Very talented player. and It was mature way beyond me at that point. I was a scrawny little kid at that point. In 2008, uh, you came in at number 20 on a list of the 100 greatest moments in Utah basketball history. It was in December of 1979. You had a 30-point and 20-rebound game in a contest against Utah State. Can you recall that particular performance? Because it's an incredible stat line. I do remember that game, now that you remind me. They had a really good team, too. Back, back that year, Utah State made the NCAA tournament, as did Weber State, as did Utah, as did BYU. Utah State had a couple of really good players. Jackson, I believe, he was in the league for a minute. Who's the other guy? Dean Hunger, I believe, was their starting center. They had a really good team. It was up there in Logan in Utah State. And yeah, I, I had a good one back then. Was that my junior year, you said? That was your junior year, yeah, in late December of 1979. Yeah. Great performance. 30 points and 20 rebounds. Yeah, Moses Malone type numbers. <laughs> You went 25-5 and five as a senior, and you were named first-team All-Whack. Again, you led the Utes in rebounding. 
You advance to the Sweet 16 before losing by five points, 61 to 56, versus the James Worthy-led North Carolina Tar Heels. Article that I read, it said that you played 24 minutes, but you still managed 11 points and eight rebounds in that time. How did it feel to go so close to defeating the Tar Heels? You were hampered with foul trouble, and of course you had guys like uh, Sam Perkins and uh, Al Wood that were also very good scorers for that UNC team. It was a great year for us. We went back to Louisville after they'd won the national championship the year before and beat them by 25 in Freedom Hall. We were good. We were really good. That game against North Carolina, a lot of things went against us. I don't remember the foul trouble as much. I remember our power forward, Carl Bankowski, I think he was like two of nine or something like that, couldn't make an outside shot. So they really were able to, you know, with James and with Sam, and they were able to pack it in on Danny and I. And so we didn't get out and run like we normally had. Didn't have the game we would have liked for sure. but. And that was on our home court. That was, that was a game that we thought, obviously, we could win. One of the games I'll never forget because it was just so disappointing. Even though they were household names in basketball, all of them, we should have won that game. Very close. Only a five-point margin, but that rounded out your college career. Just a quick recap of your impact with Utah, just for the context of our listener here. You led the Utes in scoring from your sophomore through senior seasons. You averaged 16, 17.2 and 18.6 points per game. You led the team in rebounding as a junior and senior. You're a member of the Utes all-century team that was unveiled in 2008, which celebrated Utah's 100 seasons of men's intercollegiate hoops. You scored 1,698 points for Utah, and you still rank ninth all-time in career scoring, and you're 10th overall in total rebounds. And just to top it off, (laughs) you're one of only four players in school history to have a 2020 game. That was the one we talked about earlier. And you're tied for ninth all-time for the most rebounds in a game, that same game with 20. So all that said, you left college with averages of 14.6 points and almost eight rebounds a game. When you look back on all those achievements, Tom, and the team as well, where does that sit in your memory? I had a great time at Utah. We had a great group of guys. We had fun. We won a bunch of games. It was disappointing for me because I thought we, you know, we had a chance to be better than we were. I think we're fourth in the country, though, my senior year rated in the polls. We just didn't win that North Carolina game. But it's interesting, our numbers, though, if you look at the time played, I think Danny and I averaged 26 minutes a game out of 40. So we didn't even have to play that much because a lot of people rotate in and out. And you see a lot of guys who had higher numbers that they were playing 32 minutes a game. So that held us back a little bit. But we loved the way we played. We were in, we were out, we were fast-paced. We scored a bunch. I truly loved it. We had some some really great times at the school. It really did. A guy named Jim Marsh, who was my assistant coach there, recruited me. Probably the main reason I went to Utah was him. He kind of lived with me my senior year and just really wanted me to go there. There was other reasons, but he was the main reason. He had been in the NBA for a brief period of time, and he really helped with my game, too. He was a six eight guy who played and played the pickup games with us in the summers up there and, and really helped you know me evolve and our team evolve because he was there every single day. He obviously had a big impact there. That's good to hear. Just out of interest, are you aware where Danny Vrain sits all-time in career scoring compared to you? I have no idea. He's just three points more. He's eighth all-time, 1,701 points to your 1,698. No, that's funny, yeah. I don't want to rub it in there, but has he ever mentioned to you that he holds a three-point lead in the career scoring over you? No, but he started as a freshman. and so True. I did not know that, that he had that above me as far as the points. 
I haven't looked back at those things. You've reminded me a lot of things I haven't thought about in about 40 years. So it's pretty interesting chatting with you. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. I really enjoyed researching your career. But yeah, maybe just don't tell Danny that he had three more points than you. <laughs> well, I'm sure he tells people. <laughs> he may do indeed. Now, in early April of 1981, you played at the Pizza Hut Classic, which was in Las Vegas. You had 11 points and a game-high 12 rebounds in your West squad's 84-82 to 82 loss. What does come to mind at this time in your life, but two months prior to the 1981 NBA draft? Well, I remember that game. Larry Brown was our coach, and I played well, but I kept missing my free throws, and I was a good free throw shooter. And it bothered me a lot. I think we would have won the game if I would have made some free throws. And he was so good and so positive and so optimistic and just said, you're going to the free throw line for a reason. You're playing hard. You're playing well. Don't worry about it. I remember that game and I was like, oh, man, what's this going to do to me? Now people think I can't make a free throw. But I remember that game and we had a couple of them. Uh, We traveled around and played. It wasn't the McDonald's thing back then, but it was fun stuff. Now, the 1981 NBA draft San Diego Clippers selected you with the eighth overall pick. You were there in New York at the time. How did it feel to hear your name called by then Commissioner Larry O'Brien? Let's go back to the podium, San Diego. San Diego selects six foot eleven, two hundred and forty pounds, Tom Chambers of Utah. Mm. All right, Steve Jones standing by. Happy for Paul Silas. I know that he wants to get as many quality players as he can. Tom Chambers has been highly thought of. He is in the interview area with Eddie Doucette. Let's go to Eddie right now. Okay, Steve, thank you. And while they took a long time to decide, I really think that they had in the back of their mind all the while, Tom Chambers, if there was any credence to that song, I Only Have Eyes for You, Paul Silas was probably thinking the same thing. He talked to this young man not long ago, did an extensive interview, and I understand that the uh, the rapport between you and Coach Paul Silas came off real good. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Coach Paul Silas. He's really a guy I've respected for a long time, and I had an enjoyable talk with him, and I was hoping, really hoping that, that they would select me. One of the uh, notes on you was that you're a hungry player. I know that that doesn't mean necessarily food, even though you look like you like to eat, but you like to go out there and give the fans their money's worth. I really would. San Diego has made me a happy person, and I'd like to make them happy for selecting me. I really want to go out and work hard and become a great player for them. Well, I guarantee you one thing. All those good folks out in San Diego, Bill Westfall, Paul Silas, Pete Babcock, and Ted Podleski are looking forward to having you. They're going to put together a winner out there, and you figure big in their plans. Number one pick, Tom Chambers, San Diego Clippers. Yeah, I was there. I was very nervous. I had actually, you know, met with Paul Silas with the Clippers, and he had told me if I was available at number eight, I would be drafted by them. So I didn't know if you were supposed to believe him or not, but I felt like I would be. But the interesting part back then in the sporting news, which I picked up when I flew back to the draft, Marty Blake was this Mr. NBA guru at the time, and he did not have me picked in the first round. I'm literally panicking. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be embarrassing really embarrassing. I'm going to be sitting there and and I'm not going to get even picked in the first round And because I didn't know how it worked. I'm this kid from Ogden, Utah. I'd never been around any of that stuff or didn't know the inner workings of how any of that happened. But Paul said he was going to draft me eighth if I was available and he did. And it was awesome. I was excited to go play for that team and play for him because he was such an NBA legend playing my same position. Just felt like he could really help me and he did help me a lot in my career to start out and, and with attitude. His game was completely different than mine, but he certainly passed along how to not be taken advantage of 
and with toughness. And that all came from Paul. I've heard great things about Paul Silas and his impact on many people over his incredible life that he had. So that's uh, excellent to hear you reflecting on that. You signed a contract with the Clippers in mid-October of 1981, and I've read that your negotiations with the polarizing figure Donald Sterling via your agent, Howard Slusher, were, quote, vigorous, end quote. What do you recall of those dealings that led to you actually signing with the Clippers? Well, they weren't vigorous because nothing happened. Nothing. We couldn't get anything done. I actually signed my contract like the night before our last exhibition game. Wow. He finally paid me. And it wasn't like I was making a lot. It was just a slotted thing. The other guys ahead of me were making a little more and the guys behind me were making a little bit less. Howard, I just kept bugging him. I'm like, just take it. Howard's like, no. Howard literally sent me a $5,000 check and said, shut up. I'll call you when it's time to do something, you know? Because I'm like, dude, I got a baby. I got to do something here, you know? Howard was tremendous. Donald was not. We got it done. And and I was fortunate because I played on a team that had some stars, but aging stars, if you will. And we didn't win very many games, but it was perfect for me because I got to play a lot. I was the leading scorer on the team. It was a great experience for me and really helped me become better, quicker. A lot of times they say, you don't want to throw a rookie in there. But while I was thrown in there, I thought it they really helped my progress quickly. You only missed four games with the Clippers in two seasons with San Diego, and you averaged 17.4 points, almost seven boards, and more than two assists per game. And you were also named the NBA Rookie of the Month in January of 1982. What's your strongest memory from that time with the Clippers? One of the strongest memories was when we won our first game, and Donald Sterling, as you mentioned, was first-year owner as well. And he ran across the court and jumped on Paul Silas and wrapped his legs around him and hugged him. And, and Paul was standing there with his hands at his sides looking around like, what the hell have I got myself into here? So it was it was <laughs> funny. So we won our first game. And then our last game of the year, I had 39 points. and really just had a great game. So we won that game too. So in between that, we weren't <laughs> we weren't a very good team. But I got to play with some really good players, some really fun guys. Bill Walton was around. He played sometimes. My first year was with Michael Brooks and some older guys, Brian Taylor, and some some guys that had been around the league for a long time. It was fun. It really was. I was with Freeman Williams my first year, I think, and and then we traded him and got Al Wood, you know, out there with us. And then the next year we drafted Terry Cummings, and we were getting better. They moved me mostly because we had Terry, and we had Michael. We had some good forwards, and they didn't need three of them, so we moved me to Seattle to get a center. It's probably a silly question, I guess, but a healthy Bill Walton obviously would have made a big difference at that time in the early 1980s, but he just was troubled with so many uh, leg-related issues primarily. But did he have much impact as far as at least off the court with making an impression on a young Tom Chambers? Yeah, he, he was tough on a lot of the guys. He was good to me because he knew I was the guy and I competed. And there were times where we played one-on-one, we did drills, we did things where I impressed him, and, and he helped me along and, and what I could do and what I could do better. So, yeah, as far as the on-the-court stuff, it was terrific. He just wasn't there much. He was doing law school, and he was playing every other game, and he was doing all kinds of weird stuff. But, yeah, if he would have been healthy, that guy, he was tremendous. Another what-if in NBA history if a healthy Bill Walton. <laughs> in August of 1983, the Clippers traded you to Seattle Supersonics how did it feel to know that you were moving to Seattle to begin a new chapter 
in your MBI journey? It was weird. I didn't want to leave. I liked our team, but Seattle was good. They had some all-stars. They'd won a championship a few years before. So it was an opportunity for me. I was also going back to play with my teammate, Danny Vrains, who was with Seattle. So that was going to be fun. I went with one of my favorite teammates, Al Wood, who went in that trade with me as well. So it worked out great. Initially, you're always like, oh man, really, I got to do this. But it all worked out. My career blossomed up there. Our team was better. I got off of a team that was winning 17 games and right away just started winning games and became good. And that's when I became an all-star up there. A great tenure uh, in Seattle. Now, in five years with the Sonics, you only missed 17 regular season games and 16 of those were in the 1986 campaign after you suffered a broken right leg and a partial ligament tear in your ankle in a game against the Clippers of all teams. I don't want to bring up old wounds, but I just have. (laughs) But do you mind talking us through that incident and how it affected you at the time? Yeah, Cedric Maxwell flopped on me and and he broke my leg. Fortunately, it was the non-weight-bearing bone. I didn't know how serious it was because it hurt. I broke it and I got two free throws. I made them. I had to shoot the free throws because you can't come back in if you don't shoot your free throws. So I thought, okay, maybe it'll be okay because I'd never really ever been hurt before. Shot the free throws. They ran down the other end, came back to this end. Somebody shot a ball, bounced right to me. I laid it in. So literally, I scored four points with a broken leg. <laughs> and I was like, what the hey? But so I missed five weeks with a broken leg and came back. It's crazy. Yeah. With that bone, I mean, John Stockton did it. I think he did it in about five weeks as well with that one. But it just goes to show you nowadays in the NBA, you can sprain an eyelash and miss five weeks these days. But guys just don't come back. But My joints were always good. My leg broke because my knee and my ankle were not going to give. They were just always so rock solid. I never taped ankles. I never had any knee problems. For me, a month seemed like an eternity. When they told me the bone will be pretty much healed in three weeks and then we'll wait a couple more after that, I was like, I was anxious as could be. But it still took me a minute after I got back to really feel confident jumping off of that leg and really, really putting it to test. That's probably more games than all the other ones I missed combined in other years. An incredibly quick comeback. I love how you said that Cedric Maxwell flopped. Oh, yeah. I certainly heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. In that first season with Seattle, 1984, in the playoffs, you were in a remarkable fifth and deciding game at Moody Coliseum, known forevermore as Moody Madness. Game five was being moved to 9,000-seat Moody Coliseum on the campus of SMU. The Dallas Mavericks versus the Seattle Supersonics. April 26, 1984. All they got to do is just throw the ball inbounds because once the ball is touched, the clock starts. Dallas up by a point. Vincent throws it to Chambers. What are they going to roll? That's over. There's still one second on the clock on the scoreboard. Mavericks are totally celebrating. Seattle is arguing furiously because the clock on the court never started. Unbelievable confusion. Ladies and gentlemen, the officials have summoned the Mavericks from the locker room. Vincent threw the ball in. Chambers stole the ball in the inbounds pass. At that point, one of the officials mistakenly blew his whistle, calling the game over, even though the clock had not expired. Seattle will now have the ball with one second remaining. Seattle makes a basket here. Can you imagine the repercussions from this? Oh, my. 
It's gone to the last second in overtime. Pause. Garnett on him. Dallas ultimately prevailed in overtime after a wild ending. When you hear the words Moody Madness, uh, what do you think of, Tom? I remember beating Dallas, you know, in Heck Edmondson Pavilion up in, in Seattle. I don't know if that was the next year or what, but I don't remember the Moody thing. But yeah, Dallas was really good. Dick Mata, who was local legend from up there in Ogden, Utah, where I was from, was their coach. And and they had, obviously, Aguirre and Vincent and Brad and Rolando. They were a tremendous team. Dallas featured Dale Alice, who would obviously become a teammate with you not long after in Seattle. That was fun, yeah. Now, Jeff Wales, we'll get to him shortly. He informed me recently that you were invited to participate in the 1986 slam dunk contest at All-Star Weekend in Dallas. That didn't happen due to your injury, I'd assume. But apparently, Michael Jordan had lobbied the year prior to get you into the dunk comp. How do you compare your in-game dunks versus what you were able to do at the 1987 contest in Seattle? Man, I was an in-game dunker. I dunked over people. I loved it. I always tried to get to the rim because back then, if you didn't get to the rim, you'd land on your head because people would take you out and foul you hard and didn't want to get dunked on. So I just learned to get to the rim and love dunking in games. And one of the reasons I was in the dunk contest, because I led the league in dunks, you know, a few times and was invited up there in Seattle, home crowd. And and at that time, nobody made the all-star team from our team. And we were good. X and Dale and myself, we were all scoring 20-plus points. We were winning basketball games. We didn't have an all-star, but it changed, you know, after Ralph got hurt, obviously. Do you actually remember the first time you ever did a slam dunk? What age were you? I was a sophomore in high school, 6'2". I was that kid that was trying to dunk a tennis ball and then dunk a volleyball and then dunk a basketball. My hands weren't very big, so I think the first time I dunked, I was probably two-handed because I could hold it. I always had pretty good bounce. It got better later as I worked at it to jump higher. You had some phenomenal in-game dunks and I implore anyone listening, go to the TC24 YouTube channel. Jeff's put together some fantastic compilations of some incredible dunks, not just the famous one that we'll touch on very briefly, which you've been asked about 7,000 times, I'm sure. (laughs) Just some great footies to have a look at. You were named the team captain of the Sonics, along with Clement Johnson, after Jack Sigma was traded to Milwaukee in the summer of 1986. How did it feel to be named one of the team captains? It was awesome. It really was. And Clem, we'd been around the team forever. He was just that older veteran guy, great human being leader. For me to be that guy, a great honor. Back then, if you didn't have a C on your jersey, you weren't allowed to talk to the refs. So for me, and I like to talk to the refs, it was then like, okay, C, I can talk to you. Right here, there's a C on my jersey, and it means (laughs) I can talk to you. It was a great honor. And truly, every time I see some footage and I see that C on my jersey when I was with the Sonics. It makes me happy. A fantastic honor. Now, we've been alluding to the 1987 NBA All-Star Game. It was at Seattle's Kingdome. It was on February the 8th. You had an incredible performance. It was a 34-point, four-rebound, two-assist, and four-steal effort, and you only played 29 minutes in the West's 154-149 to overtime win. You were named the All-Star Game MVP. You had family there in attendance because CBS crossed to them in the crowd right around the uh, time that you were named MVP. You were, as you mentioned, a replacement for the injured Ralph Sampson. 
At what point did you learn that you were named to the All-Star squad and how did Pat Riley actually tell you that you would be starting in the game? Golly, I got a call. I can't even remember who called me. Maybe it was Rod Thorne or somebody called me and said that I was going to be replacing Ralph. And obviously being in Seattle, you know, I'd had a good year. We had a good year. Our team certainly deserved that, whether it was me, Dell, or X, but Ralph being my position, I was that natural one. That was before, you know, everything became bigs and littles or front court, back court. We had every position represented and there was a couple of centers and four forwards, if you will, and guard. So I was that guy and was asked to play and I'm very excited about it. But then since Ralph was voted a starter, he had to put a, a starter in and Pat Riley thought since it's in Seattle, I'm a hometown guy, it makes sense to have the fans on our side. Now the starting lineup for the Western Conference. Selected to start by the fans, but unable to be here today due to injury, the Houston Rockets' Ralph Sampson. Starting in his place and making his first all-star appearance, the versatile forward from the hometown Seattle Supersonics, Tom Chambers. And I'll tell you what, nobody but Pat Riley could do that. What other coach is going to say, okay, all you guys were on the team before him, but we're going to put him in the starting lineup. <laughs> Nobody's going to question Pat Riley. No. It was kind of a lot of pressure. And at the start of the game, I missed like three shots. He called like a lob and I missed it. And Tom Chambers missed a chance to get a roar from the crowd. <laughs> oh boy, that would have gotten him off in fine fashion here in front of this crowd. It wasn't a pretty start, but then I got warmed up and just started doing what I do. In an all-star game back then, it was competitive. I think we got 7,500 if you won and 5,000 if you lost or something like that. So I'd like the extra cash, and we all did. And, and at the time, the East was dominating, so the West was really wanting to get a win. Magic, Pat, it was a very, very competitive thing, unlike what you see in today's all-star games. It was it was very, very competitive. and. It was a who's who all-star game. I mean, you talk about Dr. J's last all-star game. They wanted him to be the MVP. Kareem was there. Larry obviously was in it. Kevin, I mean, a great, great group. Isaiah, I was able to be on the floor with those guys. Certainly a dream of mine. It's got to be the pinnacle of my career just because of the fact that who the guys were on the floor and I was the best player that day. The incredible memories and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that particular game, which was nothing short of outstanding. Uh, how was it to team up with Magic Johnson maybe 10 years after you first had played with or against him back in uh, high school days and the impact that he had and how it helped your performance across that game after, as you said, a bit of a shaky start? He was the perfect guy. I was always jealous of James Worthy getting to run the fast break with Magic Johnson because Magic pushed the ball and it was showtime for them and I just wanted that opportunity. Chambers. Oh. Basket counts, a reverse layup by Chambers, and a foul. 18 points for Chambers, and he is the leading scorer for the West All-Star. We were losing, I don't know, maybe by 10 points or something, if I recall, with a few minutes left, and I went in, Magic went in, and we made that run. The West down by 12. Magic Johnson, their spark. Chambers goes for three and hits it. That's a way to get some of it back. It was a thing to behold. We just got it going. Chambers scores for the West. And it's blistering action now in the All-Star game. Went right at him, shooting high-percentage shots. 
The lead is three. Chambers, 30 points for Tom Chambers, and he is a real MVP candidate. And we were two down, and then Orlando, as you mentioned earlier, got fouled. And Blockman. A foul is called with no time remaining. And Rolando Blockman is going to go to the free throw line with no time remaining and a chance to send this game into overtime. And he went to the free throw line, and I remember Isaiah talking smack to him and everybody talking smack to him. And <laughs> he coolly went up there and he, he sunk two free throws to put us into overtime and we beat him. That's when he said those famous words, confidence, baby, confidence. And the rest <laughs> is history. Chambers with a follow-up. Magic Drove and Chambers with 32. 148-146 the West. Chambers gets two more. Now Magic says the pick-and-roll play. Chambers is setting such a good pick that Magic's getting right into the teeth of the defense, making McHale adjust. 34 now for Chambers. Final seconds. Pat Riley will have his second all-star victory in overtime. Final score, the West, 154, the East, 149. What a game, Tommy. Tom Chambers of the host Seattle Sonics scored 34 points. Moses Malone had 27 points and 18 rebounds. The West has won the all-star game. Here in Seattle, in dramatic fashion. The game's most valuable player. Let's go onto the court and Pat O'Brien. Pat. All right, Nick, thank you. The greatest basketball player in the world for today is Tom Chambers. And here's Commissioner David Sturm with a presentation. Simply congratulations to you and to the city of Seattle. It was a great game. Congratulations on being the MVP. Tom, you can pick up the trophy if you want. It's yours. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams, I guess he doesn't. <laughs> Did you ever think in your wildest dreams that this would happen in your home city? I never ever thought it would happen. This is something that, that you dream about and dreams are made of, and I can't believe it happened to me. I, I'm just so grateful today. It's super. I appreciate this opportunity, and um, I'm glad Rolando hit those free throws. <laughs> well deserved. Congratulations. Congratulations. Let's go back to Dick. Thank you very much, Pat. The highest scoring game in all-star history. The hometown man made good. Do you actually watch the game from time to time? I have a hard time watching myself, even with my TV that we do now. If, if it's a clip of me, I have to look away because it makes me nervous. Even though I know what the outcome is pretty much, I just don't like looking at me when I'm doing things. I'll see highlights now and again. But most of Jeff's things, my family will tell me all about it. And I'll look at little bits and pieces of it. I just don't enjoy it. It makes me nervous. I start sweating. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, how you were playing alongside Dale Ellis and the X-Man Xavier McDaniel in Seattle. You were one of three 20-point scorers in 1987 and 1988. Just briefly, what was it like to play in that type of offense that obviously suited your game so well? It was perfect. We just basically played a three-man game with me and Dell and X, and then you know the point guard initiated it, gave it to me, Dell, or X. And then Alton Lister or Clem Johnson, whomever, just stood over in the corner and got out of it. So we played three-on-three three basketball, and, and we always felt that our three was better than their three. We just figured out a way to make it hard on teams and got good, really good. And that's what I remember. I mean, we went up against the Mavericks. I think we must have been like the seventh seed, and they were like the two seed in the West. And we went down there and played them. It was a five-game series at the time. 
we weren't expected to be in the playoffs, so Seattle Center wasn't available. And so the first game in Dallas, they beat us by 30. The next game, we won by one point, I believe. So we go back up to uh, Seattle, and we played in Heck Edmondson Pavilion, University of Washington's little wooden bleacher gym, okay, with the band and the cheerleaders, and we beat them two games. A sellout crowd of 8,000 will jam tiny Heck Edmondson Pavilion on the campus of the University of Washington tonight as the Seattle Supersonics and the Dallas Mavericks meet in game four of their Western Conference playoff series. The Supersonics end up winning it, and they win it by 26. 124 to 98, the Sonics win the series. Dale Ellis, the former Mav, did it to his team again. He had 21. Now the former Washington Husky back in his old arena. Detlef Schrempf projected down to the other end. Tom Chambers with the jam, and the All-Star had 31 points. Bernie Bickerstaff gets a hug from Dick Mata, who has had his share of misery as a coach against Seattle, and the Sonics shock Dallas. After the game, Tim Healy was in a happy, happy locker room as the Sonics will face Houston. The way the season ended up there, we didn't know how good we'd be in the playoffs. Earlier in the year, we thought we could be a factor in the playoffs, and all of a sudden it went away, and, and now we've picked everything back up, and, and we're playing at a higher level than we have all season, and that's what you're supposed to do in the playoffs. That's how the scripts are written, but uh, it always doesn't come to pass that way, and we're, we're happy that it did. Tom and X will head for Houston Saturday at 5.30. And so we won the series, and Dick Mata retired. He quit. He, he he had enough. That's when he uh, he resigned. So that was kind of our coming out party when we beat that very talented Dallas team and uh, it put us on the map. 1987 playoffs, the first round, 3-1, I think you uh, won the series. Yep. Also, I think it was Dale's revenge for being a member of Dallas <laughs> going back a few years as well. <laughs> In July of 1988, you signed with the Phoenix Suns as an unrestricted free agent. You were the first such player to do so in the history of the NBA. Here's an excerpt from my great conversation with the godfather of Arizona sports, the iconic Jerry Colangelo, from episode 127. He details how Tom Chambers came to be a Phoenix Sun. There was a player when the free agency was announced, a new piece of free agency, which was unrestricted free agency. I remember being told that at an NBA owner's meeting, and I kind of looked at Seattle's owner at the time, and I was thinking Tom Chambers. Well, we were told what the new explanation was for unrestricted free agency. And in my mind, I said, you just lost Tom Chambers. In my mind, I didn't say that to him. On the evening at midnight when you could reach out, otherwise before that's tampering, I was on the phone. And hours later, I was in Los Angeles. And a couple hours later, I had Tom Chambers. He was there with his agent. We struck first. I asked his agent, what do you want? He gave me the number. I said, no, here's what I'm willing to do. You've got 10 minutes to give me an answer. And he responded within the 10 minutes and said, you got yourself a forward. Now, another turnaround the biggest turnaround ever, from 28 wins to 55 wins in the conference finals because Chambers, Kevin Johnson, Wes, Corbin, the other players that we had, Marley became a fan favorite. And that was a great run with that group of players until we acquired Charles Bartlett. Do you mind just detailing your memories of the negotiation with Jerry Colangelo and maybe Cotton Fitzsimmons? What 
was the thing that convinced you that Phoenix was the right team for you? Well, I had watched them the year before after they had made the trade. Larry Nance went away, and I loved what Kevin was doing. I loved what Jeff Hornacek was doing, and I just thought they played hard. They played fast-paced. I loved watching them. And one thing I thought about the team is since Larry was the one that was traded, that's really the only position that they needed somebody, and that was what I was. So I thought I would slide in seamlessly. That whole negotiation, it took about five minutes. I met them as soon as I could at Howard's home in Los Angeles. I knew Paul Westfall. Paul was also a client of Howard's. And so they set the whole meeting up. So when Paul was there, he was a coach. Cotton, he wasn't shy and he talked and he did all that. But Jerry was just like, okay, we're here. You fit the criteria, obviously. And this is the offer. And he told Howard and Howard (laughs) looked at me and he said, let's go talk about it, Tom. As we were getting up to walk in the other room, Jerry said, uh, you have 15 minutes because if you don't take this, we're going to go meet with somebody else. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't even call the family in 15 minutes. I'm saying here. So so Howard, who was that tough negotiator, he held guys out for whole seasons in the NFL. And he went back there in the back room with me in his office. And he said, it's a great offer. It's a lot more than what Seattle had offered me. We said yes. And it was over. And yeah, the only reason I was the first unrestricted free agent is because Jerry only gave me 15 minutes. I had to make up my mind quick or I wouldn't have been in Phoenix. But it was the perfect decision, the perfect team, perfect style of play, great teammates, great coach for me and the way I played. So it really took my game to another level when I came to Phoenix. Now, in that first season in 1989, you advanced to the Western Conference Finals before losing out to Magic Johnson and the LA Lakers. In early 1989, You made your famous dunk over Mark Jackson. It was during the Suns' home game against the Knicks. I won't belabor the point, but the dunk has become immortalized in NBA law. Oakley smacking Chambers. Threw it away. Two on one. KJ to Chambers. Yeah! Oh, boy. He went right up, Mark Jackson. Timeout, Knicks. This place is in a frenzy. 4.55 455 to go, and the Suns are back within two. It's what most fans remember today when they hear your name. It sort of symbolizes the rise of the Suns franchise, I guess, from the ashes of the prior couple of seasons, which were quite devastating to the franchise. Uh, how do you feel about being remembered for that particular dunk, Tom? I tell you what, there's a lot about that game because we're playing the Knicks. They were one of the better teams in the East. And we wanted to be one of the better teams in the West, and we were right there. And this was a nip and tuck game, one point here, two points there, one point there, back and forth, physical, getting after it. I had Charles Oakley and Patrick Ewing, and it was just one of those games where we really, really, really wanted to win. I think I poked it away or something and got the steal we ran. When KJ threw it to me, I knew we needed the basket. I was going to do anything humanly possible to get to the rim. I saw Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson always wants to take a charge. He wasn't going to try and hack me or anything. So I just wanted to get to the rim. And man, I'll tell you what, it worked out great. Obviously, the crowd went crazy. We were able to win that basketball game. But one of the reasons we won the basketball game is because of the energy that was infused into the crowd because of that dunk. We were all nervous. We were all like, this is a heck of a team and we want to win. So it wasn't like garbage time or against a bad team. It was against the Knicks. We needed the basket. And and I was going to ensure that we got that basket by going, up over and uh, get myself to the rim. A phenomenal 
play and moment in NBA history for sure. Uh, I know that a lot of people say that's your greatest dunk of all time, but <laughs> what do you personally consider to be your best dunk ever? Because in that highlight clip that we talked about that's on Jeff's uh, TC24 channel, there's an array of monster dunks that you did, which were just phenomenal. I love watching the one where it went by Larry Bird and went under the basket very quickly and dunked it. Because it was Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird, and I don't know, Pinkney or whatever. But it was great shot blockers there at the rim waiting after I went by Larry. And I had to dunk it quick. But that one is one of my favorites to watch. The other one that I always say was my favorite was it was against Philly when Roy Hinson was there. And he was the leading shot blocker in the NBA. And I went uh, right, but then he came in and I switched it to my left hand. And I dunked it on him left-handed. It's in that clip as well, but it's very quick, very, very quick. And I love that dunk. Is Chambers to the hoop. Oh, my, yes, sir. Left hand slam for Chambers, and he is fouled. Well, Tom was upset the last time he went to the hole, and he felt like he was fouled. This time, very little question. And this is just a nice pass, a delayed pass from Nate McMillan. Look at the authority. Tom puts that one down. I did it left-handed over, you know, at the time, the leading shot blocker in the league. And when you talk about in-game dunks, I had some great, great, great in-game dunks. I really did. I just liked to do that. Those are probably my other two. I had a lot of backwards dunks. I had a lot of fast break dunks. Like I said, I led the league in dunks a time or two. So I had a bunch of them. But yeah, if people think that I only had one dunk, watch that TC2 Ford <laughs> dunk mix by me. And there's some ridiculous ones in there. There really are. It's crazy. There's another one that you did at Detroit where after you dunked it, the rim was bent. I know the one you're talking about at Boston Garden. I think the other player that contested that, other than the big three, was Reggie Lewis. That was a CBS game. Yeah. I watched those uh, highlights just last night, so I can remember it. And uh, I've had Roy Hinson on the podcast before. He's a friend of the show, and he was a fantastic shot blocker. And I do remember that left-hand dunk. Some fantastic memories. Roy won't want to talk about that one. (laughs) No. (laughs) But I loved Roy, man. I loved him. And I had some dunks on Manute. I used to love to go at Manute. He was so funny. He said, I feel very good today, Mr. Tom. You will not dunk on me today, Mr. Tom. He (laughs) he was always saying that to me, and I just loved going at him. The rim was 10 feet, and I just loved going at him and uh, putting a body on him. Enjoyed people like him and enjoyed people like Roy. The other guy you mentioned in Detroit, that guy, no, I didn't enjoy him, but it was nice to dunk on him. Is that Bill Ambeer? Mm-hmm. Do you wish to elaborate any further, or you're just happy to leave it as that? It won't be nice, so I'll just leave it at that. Okay, we'll leave his heinous for another time. (laughs) Now, one of the first few games that I saw on TV here in Australia was back in the 1991 NBA regular season. Your sons flew to Japan to open the regular season. I think it might have been one of the first regular season games played overseas, if I'm not mistaken. What was it like to play those two games in Tokyo and taking the NBA experience to that part of the world? The new season began in the Far East. The Suns opened the season on the road and across the Pacific, splitting an historic two-game series with the Utah Jazz in Tokyo, Japan. It was awesome because it was against the Jazz. We got a home and away game, so 
it was some of the better players. Obviously, we had a great team. They had a great team with Carl and John. Japan got to see some really good basketball. And like you say, that kind of opened it up to where teams are going and doing that sort of thing now a lot more often. Just getting to play in other setting like that, on other floor like that, it was something we remember. Now, I remember coming back, and Cotton was really upset because, man, we, we had some jet lag or something, and the Jazz did too, and we both went on like losing sprees after that that whole thing. Going over wasn't a problem, but getting those hours back when we came back this direction really messed with us. So it was a great experience, but, man, after that, we weren't good for a couple of weeks. Just for some context for our listener here, as a member of the Suns, you were an all-star in 1989. You had 14 points. 1990, had 21 points. And in 1991 in Charlotte, you had eight points. You were also named to the All-NBA second team in 89 and 90. And in Phoenix, you averaged more than 20 points, six rebounds, and two assists per game. Your 1990 season was outstanding. You were the fourth leading scorer in the NBA, averaging more than 27 points a game. You only trailed Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, and Patrick Ewing. And in that season, you exploded for 60 points in a game against the visiting Sonics, of course, your former team. In 42 minutes, you had 60 points on 22 of 32 from the field, and you had six boards, four assists, one steal, and a couple of blocks. You obliterated Seattle in the end, 121 to 95, an incredible performance. How often are you asked about that game, and where does that sit within? Your all-time memories, Tom. Eddie Johnson looking at Chambers. Gets in the ball. Chambers forces it. Yes! That's going to get him out of there. That's 60 points. He's got 60. You're going to hear, well, listen to this ovation when he comes out. Even Seattle's congratulations. always one of the greatest moments because it was against my former team and it was against players that were good defenders it was against x it was against Derek mckee it was against paul Anise and sean kemp so it was against some really really formidable guys and i you know wanted to do well against them it was kind of the situation when i left san diego they had forwards and i was kind of the one out and in seattle i felt like bernie was going to trade me because he had the forwards he wanted one of the reasons i came to phoenix was because I didn't want to end up in Detroit or in Cleveland, or I just didn't want to. Came to Phoenix, and we got good. And to beat them and to be better than them, it was awesome. I got hot. It was a fun time for me. When you play your former team, your teammates are probably more aware of it than you are, and they really want to do whatever they can to help the situation so where you can have a great moment against your former team. And, and that's exactly what happened. Everything fell into place. And I'm glad you reminded me that I had four assists because my guy said I never passed it. So it's nice to know that I had four assists in a game when I was hot. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's fantastic. There was another game in which he scored 56 points. Chambers against Tigger, the three-point range. Moves in for a 16-footer. Good. Chambers has 38 points. He doesn't want to pass the ball now. He knows he's so hot that... Let well, him take it. That's a new record because the Warriors' all-time record for most points and a half by an opposing player was Wilt Chamberlain, 36 points. And that was back in 1966. Holy Chambers smoke. had just broken that. KJ off to Tom Chambers who drives and scores. That's and that is 40, 40 points. points. 40 points in the first half for Tom Chambers. Here's Tim Perry coming in. Tom Chambers coming out. 56 points. 
there have been only 83 60-point regular season games in NBA history. Wilt Chamberlain has 32 of those, which <laughs> almost beggars belief. You're one of just 52 people on the planet who have ever scored 60 or more in a game. How does that make you feel when you hear a stat like that? Oh, it's fun. It's neat that I was able to do that and score 60 points. I think Carl did it right before I did it with Utah. But it's funny how time goes by, too. When I retired from the NBA, I had 20,000 points, but I was 24th on the list. And I think now my 20,000 points puts me like 50th on the list. So there's been some great players come along and score a bunch of points. I'm sitting here talking about Devin Booker every day, and he gets 50 again last night. So there's some great scores, a lot more scoring, a lot of higher scoring because guys are shooting six, eight, ten, three-pointers a game. So I'm glad that I'm still mentioned in a lot of things. But most of my records are gone, that's for sure. But, man, I had a great career. A lot of people that I owe a great deal of thanks to for, for what I was able to do. How did you adjust to the arrival of Charles Barkley when he joined your sons before the 1993 season? Well, I didn't like it initially because Jeff Hornacek, who was my favorite, went. Tim Perry went and Andrew Lang went. and They had to go for us to get Charles. After that whole disappointment set in, obviously Charles was my position. I was going to be coming off the bench. That wasn't bothering me, but I, I felt like the group we had was so close. Without a Kevin Johnson, you know, hamstring pull, or without a little of this, we could have done that, but we were taking the next step. So once I got over having my feelings hurt because of that, Charles was terrific. He was a great teammate. He was fun to hang out with, still hang out with him, love the guy. But our team went, I think, from, I don't know, 117, whatever points a game to about 104 or five. So we slowed down. Temple got different. Ball went through Charles every single time, but we got better. We were more efficient. We're a better rebounding team. Our defense was better. It was a great year. It was a fun year to travel with that group because we had the best record and we were supposed to win it all. Thank you for your honesty there. It's refreshing to hear. You had that first round scare against the Lakers in which you came back from a 2-0 deficit to win the series after Paul Westfall's famous quote that you would take the series. I know the next question is, are you guys dead? No, we're going to win the series. We're going to win one Tuesday, and the next game's Thursday. We'll win there, then we'll come back and we'll win the series on Sunday. And everybody will say what a great series it was. And then also you were extended to seven games against the Sonics in the Western Conference Finals before meeting the Bulls in the 93 Finals. Just briefly looking back on that playoff run and the ups and downs that you experienced, what springs to mind for you? We were a team that played well when we had to. We shouldn't have gotten down to the Lakers. We shouldn't have gotten down to the Sonics. But when our back was against the wall, Charles was amazing. I mean, even in that, you know, in Chicago, I don't know, the numbers he had in that triple overtime game were remarkable. I remember, you know, the Lakers thing and Paul and going down there. When I remember the Sonics thing, we were on the verge of losing to a really, really good Sonics team. And in seventh game, I said to Paul, I said, Paul, I know Derek McKee better than anybody here. And, and Derek was killing us. I said, let me start. I'll guard Derek. I think I can do that. And they started me and we won the game. And it was the only game I started all season long. I went back to the bench after that. Paul was a great coach, and I just wish we wouldn't have waited and got behind because I think that really took a lot of our energy out of us as a group when you have to go maximum amount of games every single round, and then you get up against Michael Jordan. And, you know, we should have been a fresher team than we were. We should have taken care of business earlier, and instead we wasted a lot more energy than we, you know, we needed to. In late June of 93, not long after, 
the Suns released you and then you had the opportunity to sign with the Utah Jazz in August. You came off the bench in all but four games with the Utah and you averaged almost nine points and more than three rebounds a game in two seasons with the Jazz. How did it feel to have the opportunity to return to Utah where your basketballing life began? It was fun. I got to live at my house. I could come into my cowboy boots and cowboy hat and just be there. I mean, John and Carl were super. The city had become jazz-crazed fans. Great things were happening with that team, and they were on the verge of doing something special. So I left Phoenix and was able to go up there, and it was it was the perfect scenario for me at that point in my career. I'd come off the bench the year before with Charles, and I was going to do the same thing with, with Carl and also as the backup center up there. So it worked out good. I had some great games with them and some great moments with them. I scored my 20,000th up there, obviously, and loved it. And how big a deal is it to score 20,000 points in the league? Think of all the hundreds, the thousands of players who've played. Only 20 so far have scored as many as 20,000 points. Chambers, he's got it! Congratulations, Tommy C. I'm very happy for Tommy. It's a great honor. Four-time All-Star. How did you go with the presentation of the 20,000th point and the crowd recognition for all that you had achieved throughout your NBA career and doing it as a member of the Utah Jazz at the time? It was awesome. It really was. They were so good about it. Fans were so good about it. I had some great moments up there. I almost got John Stockton's career assist record in my hands and, and I got fouled or I would have got it. It was probably perfect because, you know, Carl should have got it because most of his assists went to Carl, but I had fun with those guys. You know, I just love Carl, love John, great people. It was a fun time up there. In 1996, you journeyed to Israel to play. Do you mind just briefly talking about that stint overseas and what it was like in terms of the culture shock versus what you experienced with the fans and things of that nature? Number eight, It was weird because the Jazz let me go after two years, like right at training camp, right at training camp. I had no idea. I knew a guy, Warren Legary, and he called me and said that Maccabi would like me to come over there and play. And I'm like, really? And he told me, you know, what they were going to pay me. And, and I'm like, I think I can still do something here. And then I thought, you know what? This might be a great opportunity, great experience. I went over there, joined them late. We were playing in a game in London, but it was a great experience. I love the people. I love the food. I love the country. The basketball, after being in the NBA for all of those years and traveling in the European Cup and coach, you know, once a week, it was Neanderthalic, if you will, compared to what we had been so spoiled with uh, here. But I loved it. I loved Israel. Loved my teammates. Welcome, most valuable player. Is it? Well, we played well. I, I was able to get inside and score and do some of the things I usually do. I felt more comfortable tonight. In the second half, the defense really picked up. Our players played much better defense in the second half than in the first. אבל בקיצור, תום צ'מברס הרגיש שהמשחק הזה קצת יותר טוב. Now, Tom, can you hear the crowd chanting Tom Chambers? Did you wake up? What does it do to you? Well, I feel more comfortable playing inside. The crowd has been very supportive. Fans have been very supportive. I've gotten a lot of letters saying we believe in you keep going and I'm going to keep working hard and I thank the fans for supporting me and it's making my my tough times go better and I feel a lot better I think I'm going to play well now I had a fun time there I could have been better 
I had a couple little nagging injuries. You know, I broke a toe and I had a couple little things that slowed me down hamstring calf. So I didn't play as well as I would have liked to. When I was done there, that's when I came back and joined Charlotte. The ovation is for Tom Chambers. Yes, that's right. Tom Chambers back in the NBA at age 37, signed yesterday by the Charlotte Hornets. Bruce Chambers, he played last season in Israel. His team won the European Championship. They had the big three with Glenn Rice and Anthony Mason and, and Vladi Divas. They needed somebody to come in and spell those guys. They didn't want to come off the floor much. And, and at the time, Cowens wasn't taking them off the floor. But I didn't really get to play much. I really didn't. A half season of basketball with Del Curry and those guys back then. But I didn't play much and, and probably deservedly so. I probably didn't earn my time there. But it was nice to get out and see another part of the country. So that was late January of 1997 and played 12 games during that time, and then you left the team in early April. Then briefly, in August of 97, you signed as a free agent with the Suns before they traded you to Philadelphia in November. Phoenix asked if I would go to Philadelphia. They wanted a guy named Marco Milley choose that guy that jumped over the Volkswagen in Europe and might salary and stuff, so they asked if I'd do it, and I said, sure, anything for you guys. Here comes Tom Chambers, who said the 16-year veteran just acquired by the 76ers. Cavaliers lead it by one. We're going to go inside two minutes here on this Philadelphia trip of the first half as Tom Chambers drops a jumper in his first Sixer appearance. Chambers as a quick four. So I went back there with Larry Brown, and Larry wanted me to coach and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, Larry, I can go back to Phoenix where it's warm and coach. I just... I don't want to be here. So it's interesting because that one game I played in Philly, I think I was two of two and two of two, and there was no more after that. So I was like, I'll just go back home in Arizona and then started working for the Suns. I've worked for the Suns ever since and, and absolutely love it. You played one game with the Sixers and then retired from the NBA for good on December the 11th of 1997. A great career, to say the absolute least, and Hall of Fame worthy, let's hope. In April of 1999, you were inducted into the Phoenix Suns Ring of Honor. Per the Arizona Republic, apparently Suns President Jerry Colangelo gave you a new Chevrolet pickup, a horse, <laughs> and a custom saddle. <laughs> what do you remember of that halftime ceremony that was held at America West Arena? From the University of Utah, a 6'10 forward, number 24, Tom Chambers. We got that basketball player and a superstar in Tom Chambers. He is the cornerstone of the building we're in right now. Without him, we couldn't have been successful. Congratulations, Tom. Jerry Colangelo. Tommy, I want to say thank you for the wonderful contribution you made to this franchise. And Cotton put it very succinctly when he said you were the cornerstone of this building. Earlier today, we were treated with a lot of videos and replays of some of Tom's great highlights. One of the most remarkable was his slam dunk over Mark Jackson, and we have sculpture Sam Wookie capturing that. It will be bronzed, but here's the sculpture, Tom, that'll be yours of that very famous dunk over Mark Jackson. Now join me in welcoming number 24, Tom Chambers. Tom. Thank you. First and foremost, Jerry Colangelo. 
the most committed owner in professional sports. And I think that says it all. Cotton Fitzsimmons, Paul Westfall, put this team together that I was a part of, that we were a part of. They were the greatest coaches ever. We had so much fun here. We had a lot of fun at Madhouse on McDowell. We brought it over here and it, it's been the best. My family, I have the five cutest kids in the world. They do look a little bit like me, so. <laughs> and now last but not least, the fans. You guys are the greatest. From day one, you embraced me. You love me. You love this team. You bought the tickets to build this beautiful arena. You have the best facility in all of basketball. It's just an honor for me to be a part of it. And you guys should give yourselves a hand because you're awesome. You truly are awesome. I want to thank Danny Ainge and Brian Colangelo for allowing me to continue to work. Um, it's nice to have a job and I'm growing immensely. I'm trying to learn and maybe one day I'll be able to make something of myself. But uh, anyway, I am truly blessed. Life is beautiful and thank you so much. Now direct your attention to the Ring of Honors and let's unveil number 24, Tom Chambers. It was awesome. The family was there. Jerry had promised me even when he released me because at the time the, the rules were such that he could use my salary and sign an AC green. And he knew that. He wanted to get better and talked to me before he had done that and, and said he was going to retire my jersey when I had retired. It was a great day. It really was. It was a Dodge truck. There was no horse involved, but I got a saddle <laughs> and they actually made a bronze of my dunk over Mark Jackson. So I have a bronze. It's about a three foot bronze of me dunking over Mark Jackson. I get a look at it every single day here. It was a great time, great honor for me. You've had a tremendous run with the Suns as a player and then now uh, still to this day involved in the broadcast. So that's excellent. The Basketball Hall of Fame selected you as a first-time nominee eligible for the class of 2022. What was your reaction to first hearing that news? It was awesome. Jeff, you got to give Jeff all the credit. I didn't even know how you got nominated. I didn't know you had to fill out a form. <laughs> so Jeff is the man solely responsible for doing that and figuring it out. I could have figured it out, but I just didn't do it. I just thought somebody did that for you. Jeff ended up doing that. It was awesome to to hear my name, to see my name, to be mentioned up there, a great honor, absolutely. And it gives us something to talk about on the broadcast for sure. But it's also nerve-wracking because you're there, you're exposed. Okay, are you going to go in? Are you going to go out? Are you not going to make it? There's a lot of emotions that are involved in that. It was a great honor to be uh, nominated back then for the first time. I'm really hoping and stating the obvious here that you do earn selection to the Hall of Fame very shortly. So best of luck with that. As you mentioned, Jeff is nothing short of a Tom Chambers superfan. <laughs> we talked about his excellent YouTube channel. It's TC24 for anyone that wants to search on YouTube. It's fantastic to look at. Plenty of highlights and edited game highlights from your incredible career. Do you remember how you first discovered Jeff's labor of love on YouTube and how does it feel for you to have such a strong supporter of yours that's campaigning for a much-deserved spot in the Hall of Fame? And I don't even remember how it first started out. I don't think it was Jeff contacting me. Somebody had seen these videos. Maybe it was my production crew. And they're like, who's this guy? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. And Jeff, I don't know if he reached out to my son first and talked to him. And then 
I'm like, dude, this isn't what he does. He's not a, you know, an editor. He had never done anything like this before. So I didn't know if there's some weird guy, some stalker guy. I didn't know what this was all about. I really had no idea. But what a great human being to do this and to feel that motivated to try and put me where he feels I need to be because I was, you know, his favorite player and just sees people going in and and like, man, you're better than him. Man, you're better than him. Man, you're better than him. And he just continues. He's like you. You find out stuff about me being a ninth grade president. Jeff has footage of stuff that I've never seen before. I'm like, where do you find that? Why do you spend that much time on that? So I'm blessed to have him and what he does. Yeah, he finally came to Phoenix and came to a game and I got to meet him. Uh, He went out to Vegas with me when they put me in the Pac-12 Hall of Fame there. I got to meet him and got to know him a little bit better. A two-time All-Western Athletic Conference Center for the running youths, Tom Chambers, held a towering presence throughout his Utah career. Chambers led the youths to two NCAA tournaments, including the Sweet 16 in 1981, after helping Utah win the conference title. His collegiate accomplishments continue to rank among the top 10 all-time in Utah, including in career scoring and rebounds. The Utah native brought a flair to the running youth program and at the game itself, with highlight reel dunk after dunk from the 6'9 center. 2022 Pac-12 Hall of Honor inductee, Tom Chambers. But just a tremendous human being, and he's obsessed with it, and, and that's good for me because he's done something that like I said, I don't even know how to get nominated. He's filled in a lot of the blanks for me. And and the videos, when they come out, my family loves them. And people call me and say, it's so great to see. And he's just done so many wonderful things as far as old footage and stuff. And some of it's not even in black and white. You know, I mean, it's, some of it, some of it's pretty good. It's uh, some color. <laughs> exactly. It's just so cool because, you know, you forget about things. And like I said, it makes me nervous to watch it. But I'm like, oh, man, I watched the Chick Hearn video yesterday or the day before, and I'm like, Chick was such a legend, and and to be sitting there talking to him, you know, that was after the MVP in the All-Star game. Tom, there's been a lot of dreams come true in this world, but your basketball dream in the All-Star game, most valuable player after not even being named to the original squad, that's great. There's no question about it, Chick. It was a great day for me and one I'll cherish for the rest of my life. 34 points in 29 minutes. You and Magic like you've been playing together all your life. Well, he sure made it easy on me. He is really a a tremendous player, too. I'm just happy to have had that opportunity, and I didn't know if I'd ever get it in my career, and I've always dreamed about it. And I think the fun is watching a guy 6'11 like yourself get down the floor in that fast break and slam that ball. Well, thank you very much. I sure enjoy doing that. There's nothing uh, that I enjoy doing more than getting out on the wing and running and and Duncan finishing it off like that. So um, I'm going to be there every time. If they give me the ball, I'm going to be able to put it in. It just brings back such fond memories of those things to see those pictures of me and Magic in the All-Star game. And we bonded, and he loved playing with me because I did what he needed. That was I caught the passes he threw me, and I finished. Sometimes I wasn't fancy, but I finished, and that's kind of what James always did with him. So it's just great to look back and see those videos of former teammates, former coaches, former players. It's fun, and Jeff has just been, oh, my goodness. He's got a hold of my children and talked to them and gotten quotes from them, and they just all love him. He's a perfect gentleman and has been nothing short of incredible for me and, and my life at this point. I'm very pleased to hear that, and thank you so much for elaborating on that. I'm sure, not that he needs to hear it, but I'm sure Jeff will be thrilled to hear you talk uh, so kindly of him. 
You mentioned there about the Pac-12 Hall of Honor. That was barely a month after you had your number 42 jersey honored by the Utes in the rafters at Huntsman Center. Tom Chambers was a two-time All-Western Athletic Conference for the running Utes from 1977 to 1981. During his time at the U, Tom tallied 1,698 points, which is still good for ninth in Utah men's basketball history, while his 876 career rebounds currently stands at 10th all-time for the running Utes. He was named the first team all-conference and all-district his senior year, and nearly averaged a double-double that year. Chambers went on to have a prolific NBA career, scoring 20,049 points. At this time, please direct your attention to the East Raptors for a special presentation as we reveal the banner of Tom Chambers. Thank you so much. Um, I didn't think I'd get emotional or... I'm so honored, I'm so humbled, and, and uh, this is just really, really cool. You know, a lot of people may say that, uh, about time, and uh, you know what, this is the perfect time. You know, if we'd have done it a little while ago, I wouldn't have had nine grandkids out here with me. I wouldn't have had seven children in the stands. I wouldn't have had my mom and my dad. And by the way, this is the first time they've all been together. Once again, thank you for having me. Thanks for putting up with me and bringing me back here. What a great honor this has been. Some great recent achievements and accomplishments in your career as well. I'd like to finish with just two questions to my guests. Basketball Digest had a regular feature, which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Likely chance we've already covered it, but is there a game from your career that stands out more than any other? It would have to be those two we've discussed. That all-star game, playing with those guys, a who's who's list, with that 60-point game against my former teammates, the 56-point game even. I loved playing against Golden State. Don Nelson was always innovative. He'd have somebody smaller, guard me or whatever, and I think I averaged 40-something a game against Golden State. I just wore them out. And it's kind of funny, too, because three of those guys are in the Hall of Fame, guys I used to average 40 points against, you know, and and we're talking about run TMC, you know, it's pretty funny stuff there. But yeah, that was good times and high scoring games. And I'm sure there's a million more. If you remind me, uh, you know, I've had records in, in Washington and games in Boston Garden. I went toe to toe with Larry and, and, you know, in Madison Square Garden. I used to have great games against Houston and Ralph Sampson, you know, Keem. I've done well against a lot of teams and had a lot of fun playing the game. Last question for you, Tom, and it's been such a thrill to chat with you today for this period of time. Thank you again. Is there any particular significance to the jersey numbers that you wore during your career? I'm not exactly sure what you wore in high school, but for the Utes, you wore 42. San Diego, you wore 22. You wore 24 for the Sonics and Suns. 42 again back with the Jazz and number 22 in Charlotte and I believe number 25 in Philadelphia. What's the particular significance, if any, with those jersey numbers, if I may ask? Jerseys to me were never that important. At Utah, I think I was given 42. I think that was just what big guys wore, higher numbers. When I went to the Clippers, I may have wanted to continue with 42 and somebody had it. I can't remember for sure, but I was 22 years old. (laughs) So I (laughs) took 22. And when I went to Seattle, I was 24 years old. So I took 24. Seriously, that's all it was. Okay, that's great. I didn't know that. It's interesting too, because my MVP game, 24 was taken by Mark Aguirre. So I took 23. 
so I won the MVP with, you know, number 23 on my back. So that was a thing. But yeah, it was just an age thing then where it was. And if somebody, you know, was already on the team, the word 24, maybe in Charlotte, I can't remember, then I couldn't do it or in Philly, you know, it just depends if somebody else had the jersey. But, but yeah, when I went to Seattle, nobody had it and it was my age. After becoming an all-star, you kind of want to stay where you're at with that number. And that's what I did in Phoenix. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you for this period of time. I wish you every success going forwards, and I really hope that your entry into the Hall of Fame is very soon. So thanks again. Really appreciate your time, Tom. Well, thank you and your time. Oh, my goodness. You must have done a lot more research than this. Holy moly, if you went back to junior high president, that's pretty funny stuff, man. (laughs) I hope you saw the hairdo back then because it was was good. Oh, absolutely. It was outstanding. (laughs) You had fantastic hair. Your whole career. I don't have any hair. I'm bald. So I am very jealous. I was very blonde back in those days. That's pretty funny. <laughs> all right, boss. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All the best. All right. Thank you. Thanks again, Tom Chambers, for taking us on a wonderful journey through your incredible life in basketball, a career that's certainly Hall of Fame worthy. We wish you all the best on your candidacy and getting entry to the fabled Hoop Hall soon. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. Tap the microphone icon on my website to send me a voicemail. You can suggest discussion topics or guests you'd like to hear conversations with. Worldwide, the show has 204 ratings on Apple Podcasts with an average of 4.9 stars with 101 reviews across all providers. Thanks for your continued support. If you had a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my free NBA History newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming episodes, future guests to appear on the show, and more. Sign up via my website or simply email me inallairness at gmail.com. You can follow my show in various ways. Search In All Airness, three words, on your listening app of choice. The show is available on most platforms. Check the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with a great range of guests. Join me next time for another edition of the show.